Welcome to Episcopals, bringing you the latest in faith-based advocacy from the Episcopal Church Office of Government Relations. Hi, I'm Lindsay Warburton with the Office of Government Relations here, introducing a special first episode of our second season of Episcopals. In just a moment, you'll be listening to the program we did recently on the two-year anniversary of the Afghanistan withdrawal and how we are continuing the work to provide permanent safety and security for our Afghan allies, refugees, and their families, both in the United States and abroad. I really enjoyed organizing and facilitating this panel on such a critical topic that so many in the Episcopal Church have not simply followed, but actually gotten involved in. I hope you enjoy hearing from these amazing panelists as much as I did. Thank you again for joining us on this uh, for this webinar to reflect on the two-year anniversary of the Afghan evacuation and discuss ideas for how people of faith can help Afghans in the U.S. and abroad. Two years ago, the last of U.S. troops were pulled out of Afghanistan after 20 years of war. Kabul, the capital, fell, and for two weeks, over 100,000 Afghans, including those who worked with or for the U.S. government, were evacuated for the, from the country over 70,000 of which arrived here through a temporary process called humanitarian parole. Resettlement agencies, faith communities, and others stepped up in an unprecedented way to welcome this community. However, two years later, Afghans in the United States lack a permanent path, uh, pathway to citizenship. Two years later, Afghan allies and refugees abroad remain at risk of persecution and harm and families remain separated from their loved ones. We need congressional action. We need Congress to pass the Afghan Adjustment Act. We have some amazing panelists today who I'll introduce now that are gonna talk more in depth about each of these issues that I just mentioned, including the latest on resettlement, private sponsorship and support, those who are left behind and the Afghan Adjustment Act. I'll introduce these, these folks one by one um, and then we'll get started. Our first panelist for today is Dario Lipovaz. Dario is the Refugee Services Director at Interfaith Ministries for Greater Houston. This organization is one of Episcopal Migration Ministries affiliates around the country, which there are nearly a dozen. Episcopal Migration Ministry works with the federal government to resettle refugees from all over the world, including Afghans through Operation Allies Welcome. Lance Rotfus, is the co-leader of the Norman Coalition for Refugee Support, an all-volunteer interfaith nonprofit group of congregations and partners collaborating to resettle refugees and asylum seekers in Norman, Oklahoma. Campbell Dunsmore is the policy officer at the International Rescue Committee, an organization at the forefront of responding to humanitarian crises across the globe, as well as contributing to the reception of refugees in the United States. Campbell has been leading the policy and advocacy responses to the relocation and resettlement of Afghans for the organization since last spring. And finally, Giovanna Oaxaca is the program director for migration policy at the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. Giovanna is a tireless and passionate advocate for immigrants and refugees at the federal level in the ELCA's advocacy office. And she's the perfect person to be talking with us about the details of the Afghan Adjustment Act. So Dario, we'll start with you. I'll go ahead and, and, and spotlight you. Dario, if you could tell us about uh, your work 
at um, Interfaith Ministries for, for Greater Houston and talk about what it's been like to resettle Afghans over the past two years, what your experience has been, um, and you know what we can look forward to in the future, what's left um, for folks. But I'll, I'll allow you to take it away and, and talk okay. about your experience, and thank you for all your work. Okay, thank you so much, Lindsay, and thank you all for, for being here. Uh, you know, full transparency, I've joined Interfaith Ministries, I've joined the EMM Network roughly four months ago, so my, my Afghan uh, experience was mostly with USCRI Network, also in Houston with YMC International Services, and, you know, just roughly to give you, Houston is a big city, but I think uh, Houston at the time had taken between somewhere between 5,500 and 6,000 Afghans in a very short period of time. So, you know, when the question popped up last two years, I was like, nobody wants to remember that because it was chaotic. It was, uh, I, 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 you know, the, the, it's, it's hard to describe to someone who wasn't there. I mean, typically we do have our protocols, we take care of people. And at a time, you know, from, from going from High quality services, we just had one thing in mind. Let's make sure people have food and have a place to stay. I mean, the YMCA at the time, an average year, we were settled 240, 250 individuals. Over the span of the week after Thanksgiving of 2021, we have taken in 280 individuals. So there was really not enough of anything and not enough housing, not enough, you know, I mean, we had three staff in resettlement, we didn't have enough vehicles. And I, you know, for a start, I really want to quote my, my, my favorite, favorite uh, HBO character, Dick Winters, and, and he said something, war brings out the worst and best in people, and same thing with crisis. And I think th this was really a, a, a moment when I realized that I'm so lucky to live in community as Houston, uh, where everyone, particularly people, you know, of the faith community have stepped up and we had so, so much support. So it was really, I mean, agencies like Interfaith or, you know, any other resettlement agencies could have really not done much without help of their communities. Many of the faith communities have, you know, that we have never really collaborated, came and said, hey, tell us what, what do you need? So eventually when, you know, when, when crisis had settled down, you know, when most of our clients were in their, you know, permanent homes, you know, we, we were really, you know, we recognized what could have happened if we didn't have that support. And for, for you know, individuals on the call, I want you to understand typically the, the refugees that we resettled were, you know, eligible for a variety of, you know, federal programs. At a time when first Afghans started coming to the country, we, we didn't really even have assurance that other than getting $1,275 per individuals, that any of the further assistance would be available. So there was a big, I guess, leap of faith on, on all of our agencies to say, hey, you know, we're going to do this no matter what. And, and I can tell you, you know, I'm, I'm not biased. I think Houston is one of the best communities for any newcomers. We had a variety of groups, foundations, you know, within, you know, a month of, of, you know, Afghan crisis, we were, you know, as, as a group, we worked as a consortium in Houston for refugee resettlement agencies. We were able to raise probably more money than ever for refugee resettlement. And I'm, I'm talking roughly $4 million within first 30 days. And, you know, at that time, that was 
you know, some things were plentiful, but, you know, keep in mind, COVID was still, you know, kind of a thing. So there was a lot of, you know, a lot, you know, much of much more concern with, you know, with, um, you know, how do you, how do you do certain things? How do you transport people? How do you, anyway, long story short, I, I, in, in a sense, I'm, I'm so grateful to live in this place, particularly to many of our faith groups. But, you know, right now we do recognize that, at, at, you know, by bringing individuals here, we've done one great thing, making sure they're safe. But there is a lot more left. And, you know, I'm, I'm not saying this to make ourselves more important. I'm saying this because these are, you know, pure, cold, hard facts that there is particularly in, within the Afghan, uh, you know, committee, most, the, the one pressing issue still remains the family separation. And without really addressing those separations, we can talk about, you know, clients having better jobs, being in the better places, you know, doing better, you know, economically. But when families are not together, none of that really matters. So ju just, you know, to give you, you know, a, 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 this is rather anecdotal than any scientific example. Majority of clients who come to see me at the office do not ask for extra assistance. They do not ask for additional rent that they ask, can you please help me bring my wife, my kids, my husband, my parents, myself. And I, I think there is a right now, you know, while I do not want to be critical of our, you know, federal government, I think there's really not a clear path of really reuniting those families. So when you pile that on, on top of, you know, the fact that many of our clients' legal status is still not resolved, that many of our clients are still, you know, either in the process of being reparoled or even pending asylum. There is a sense of, of uncertainty, and that affects people in so many ways. You know, I had, you know, client, when, you know, grown men cries in your office, you know that there's definitely, you know, something that bothers is asking, for example, a client a few days ago, it's like, are you sure that me and my kid will be allowed to stay here? And well, I can, I can't give him an answer with a straight face and tell him not to worry, right? Because we still have, you know, I, I think out of fifteen hundred clients that Interfaith Ministries had resettled, roughly twelve hundred are still pending asylum outcomes. So it is, it is reason to be concerned. We were told that this would be a, a rather a, a pro forma application, but we are seeing that's not still the case. And in addition to that, I think just the demographics of the families that we have resettled uh, really requires, you know, much more assistance in terms of both, you know, when it comes from education, health, particularly mental health, uh, the cultural differences are, you know, sometimes really impacting, you know, the well-being of, the, of, of our, our clients. And, you know, as of right now, and again, you know, the credit, I'll give credit, whereas I think our federal government had provided fairly sufficient assistance for, for the Afghan arrivals through supplemental funding. So we do have additional assistance. As I said, our, uh, you know, communities has been very generous. Uh, but at the same time, you know, it, 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 you know it's, it, it is not, you know, endless pots of money that we have that we can keep assisting people. 
you know, our goal is really to get into the point where they're going to be self-sufficient, like with any other refugee group. It will just take much, probably much longer to do that than with the rest, you know, going back at the beginning of Afghan crisis, when we started receiving our first SIV clients, they were typically young, healthy, male, spoke fluent English, right? That has all changed with, with the fall of couple. You know, we have clients who are, I mean, not just, you know, at a low level of education, but I, I think illiteracy percentage, you know, for certain, you know, the geographical groups is, you know, at 50%. So it is very hard to apply the same, you know, same criteria to, you know, your refugee who had come and, you know, they were a medical doctor in their country. And we are trying to address the issues. We are, again, we are having amazing community that support us. You know, our faith, uh, you know, groups are have banded together. And, and, and for right now, I think there's plenty of resources. What we are really, really, really dreading that that's going to go away eventually. And I think at that time, I think it's, it's really important to stress out that integration for somebody who is not, who's never been to school, who cannot read and write their own language, does take a little bit of time. And most, I think one single most important thing that I, I would ask everyone on this call is to plead with our Congress to do something about a family identification for Afghans. And with that, is is my 10 minutes coming up? Lindsay? Oh yeah, that's you're you're right on time. So okay. And I will, I will stay until the end. I've seen already there are some comments that I will be, you know, more than happy to try answering. Thank, thank you. you so thank you so much. Um and you're absolutely right. Um the the work that you all have have done is in, is incredible. And unlike other kinds of refugees, the the lack of permanent status leads to a lot of, of complications. Um, you know, EMM and other resettlement agencies have been doing this work for for decades now, and most refugees get to come in and have a pathway to citizenship and get to bring their family members. Um, and so, two years later, we're still having we're still having issues. Um, it's definitely something that needs to be addressed. So, thank you so much, Dario. Thank you, Lance. So for our, our, our next speaker, Lance, um, Dario mentioned a lot about community support. That is something that we have seen unprecedented levels of, um, and especially for this population. And I think people connect so much to the Afghan story and our connection, the U.S. connection to it. Um, I would love if you talked a little bit about your coalition, which is a group of about 10 congregations, including Episcopals, Lutherans, Methodists. How did you all get together? Um, what was your experience resettling? Um, and where are these folks now? What are what are your what are your hopes for for the future? Um, and what's your message for the people on the call who, uh, many of whom I I I would bet have also resettled Afghans as well, um, but would love to hear from you about your experience and your story. Well, I, I think we can all resonate with what Dario said. He 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 was covering a lot of what I was going to say. So it's sort of the sure. same story, different places and such. So ours was a little bit of a different situation, a small town, college town, Norman, Oklahoma. And uh, we started about four years ago, uh, assisting Catholic charities and bringing um, refugees into the community, just one or two, sort of a trickle. Um, uh, we had Presbyterian, Methodist and Lutheran, Lutheran uh, working on this. Um, everything was going on hunky-dory. This is easy. This is easy. And then Afghanistan happened. Uh, Kabul fell. 
And our governor of Oklahoma made a promise that, that we were gonna that Oklahoma was gonna bring in 1,700 people, 1,100 of them in the Oklahoma City area, and really pushed on Catholic Charities to agree to that. And Catholic Charities said okay. And the next thing we know. They're getting overwhelmed, they're getting swamped, and they came to us because we have a little bit of a relationship with them already and said, please help us. So we had uh, we had the great benefit, I, I will say this, the thing that saved us, I think, was the fact that we had three recently retire, retired administrators who were involved in, in organizing and knew how to organize, and we ramped up rapidly as the Afghans started coming in. We ended up with nine nine families, average family size eight. I think everybody can relate to that uh, who has uh, dealt with the Afghans coming in. Um, it was trial by fire. We had to uh, move quickly. We added on to our coalition, as Lindsay said, there were uh, several other um, denominations that came in, Episcopals came in, Church of Christ. We even had a non-denominational Hispanic church that came in to join us. So. We're strong uh, in in interest. Uh, the, the challenge is always getting the volunteers to stay excited and, and uh, active in what they're doing. Our organization set up that each family had a liaison, about two or three liaisons that were on the ground in in the houses, working with the families, understanding what their needs. It's sort of like a hub and spoke approach that the liaison was the one interacting with the family. But we had a whole uh, constellation of other teams uh, around them uh, dealing with housing and food and health and employment and legal. You can imagine all those things, all those needs that they had, we had to rapidly put together other teams that could help in that regard. And again, we uh, God blessed us with having all these congregations with, with talent to come in and, uh, and assist us in that and getting them established. Uh, Norman is also, like I said, a college town. So housing was miserable. It still is miserable. And with the size of the families, we couldn't deal with apartments. We had to find houses for them. Uh, some of the lessons we learned in all of this was, we kept thinking, we wanna get them independent. Like Dario said, self-sufficient, independent, great. The problem is the Afghan culture is communal and they rely on each other. So we brought them in trying to find houses anywhere we could and slowly realized that they needed to be close to each other because they were leaning on each other. Some of them were even related. So they, they said, come to Norman. And so we said, okay, we'll, have, we'll bring them in. And so that helped, but we had to find housing and such close by so they could lean on each other and be that communal culture that, that they left behind. Uh, our phrase, we have a, catchphrase on this is always, we advise, they decide. Uh, as any case manager would know, you can always you know, say so much and then finally it's up to them to make the decision. We have to just stand back and let those decisions be made. But we can say over and over again, that my question was for you know, people of faith, how this, how this worked for us. Over and over again, we call it God moments. Every time we thought, we're in trouble. We don't have this. We can't fill this. We're, how are we going to do this? The next thing you know, somebody walks in the door and says, how can I help? I can actually plug that hole. So over and over again, we have examples of that. So this is just another example of even a small town, small-ish town, people bonding together 
with a common vision, a common interest can do uh, amazing things. And we are absolutely blessed in being able to do that. Um, we've had some success stories in, in all this as well. All, uh, all the men got driver, drivers, got their driver's license pretty quickly. And then the women said, we want some too. And it was just sort of a cascade effect. You know, one or two said, can we get a driver's license? The next thing, no, the word spread. And we set up a special driver's education program uh, with the local uh, instructors here. Uh, and they've all gone through it. And they're now on their way to get their own driver's license um, and such. Um, I see the question about how many went to Norman. Well, do the math. We had nine families, average family size, eight. So that's, you know, 75, 60, 75, somewhere in there, uh, uh, all together came into Norman. Um, we also did a summer school this year because the, the, the regular public schools didn't quite have uh, enough room for that. We did our own uh, summer school and um, the kids just absolutely didn't want it to end. They were fabulous. And we had a young teacher that came through and said, this is probably the best class I'll ever have um, because those kids were so well behaved and um, and did so well. So where I'm going to echo what Dario said. Where do they need help? The uncertainty. They are scared that um, they might have to go back to Afghanistan. I think all of you who have dealt with those families know that sort of thing. Um, they're, they're fearful of losing their status and having to be sent back. These are our experience. These are hardworking, dedicated, committed people to living in the United States and making a, uh, uh, um, making a difference in the United States, and they understand that. Um, they left everything behind, including loved ones, and Dario, you're absolutely right. We get questions all the time. Can you bring somebody back, somebody over, and, and such? And it's hard to say we just can't. There's only so much that we can do. We do it where we, where we can. What we are also kind of discovering is that they, they, since they left everything behind, they are coming into kind of a lower quality of life in the United States. You don't really think of that, but they came in with wealth in, in their homes and abilities and, and things back in Af Afghanistan. They left it all behind and had virtually nothing. So imagine, you know, we hear how great it is in America, but they are below the standards that they grew up with uh, and lived with in Afghanistan. So the final thing is just the Afghan Adjustment Act. I couldn't uh, say, state this any stronger. That, that has got to be the priority. We are already calling our, our members of Congress to get that passed in the context of they protected our people in Afghanistan. It's time for us to return that favor and protect them here. So uh, it's it's been an awesome experience. We learned a lot in a hurry, but it's all so rewarding. Thank you so much, Lance. And thank you for, for sharing those stories and, and your experience and, you know, giving, giving people dignity and hope and as limited as it, as it may be, we can only go so far without that, that final step, but getting people homes and driver's license. And um, the final step is, is, is at our doorstep and we just have to have the courage to take it and really grateful for your work and for all the work across the United States and um, Godspeed in, in the future. And, can I just tag Absolutely. one last little uh, anecdote? I, I just just before this meeting, I said a goodbye to one of our Afghans who is leaving to go to San Antonio because he's been hired as a contractor for USCIS hmm. to help 
other Afghans in in the uh, in coming to the United States. So success. He was bad. He was sad that we, he was leaving, but we said, "This is what we do. Go for it. Go help others." Absolutely. And he's on it. So sorry. No, incredible. I I appreciate that. All right. So for our next our next speaker, I will add Campbell to the screen. Campbell, thank you for for joining us. So understandably, a lot of our focus has been on the Afghans in the United States. Um, but as we've heard, there are quite a few that, um, and by quite a few, I mean tens of thousands who, who are left behind in Afghanistan, Pakistan, and other places as well. So family reunification is, is one part of it. But there are folks who are, who are not, who do not have family members. There are allies left behind, refugees, um, women um, as well. Would you talk a little bit about who are these? Who are these Afghans? Um, why they? Why they might need help? What, what are they facing right now? Where are they? Um, and how do how do we help them? How how can the United States and and potentially individuals? How can how can we under better understand this issue and the the crises they're facing? Sure. Thanks, Lindsay. Um, and thank you all uh, for all of your, your work. It was wonderful to hear from Dario and Lance, who are sort of on the ground interacting with um, Afghans every day, um, really in the trenches of the resettlement work. Um, and as both of them mentioned, uh, the family separation issue um, is a huge one. Um, and one that is greatly inhibiting people's ability to really find their, their home in the United States. Um, so we've got a couple of different categories of people um, who are either currently still in Afghanistan, in another country um, awaiting to come to the US, um, or really, either one of those options. Um, so uh, first, um, there are special immigrant visa holders. So I, I think Dario mentioned at the beginning of, um, of his time an SIV. Um, and the SIV program was created by the US government in 2006. Um, and it creates a special visa for Afghans and Iraqis who worked directly with the US government or diplomatic corps. Um, eligibility was expanded actually in July of 2021 to include people who, um, originally the program was for people who worked for at least two years for the US government and eligibility was expanded just before um, Kabul fell in August of 2021 to include people who had only worked for the US for at least one year. So uh, there are, as you can imagine, tens of thousands of, of Afghans who are eligible for this particular pathway to the US. Um, there are, are a lot of them who have begun the application process and are somewhere in the pipeline. Um, as you can imagine, uh, our immigration system at every level is severely backlogged. Um, and so each pathway takes way too much time. Um, so a lot of the folks who had applied already for the SIV program were not, had, did not have their visa in hand. They were still awaiting processing. 
um, and are, are still in Afghanistan. Um, there are also folks who um, are part of the priority two uh, category of the US Refugee Admissions Program, which I'll describe in a little bit. There are folks who are eligible for family reunification um, via a particular State Department team that I will also refer to in a little while. And then there's everyone else um, who I'll, <laughs> I'll talk about in a while in a little bit as well. So um, of the almost 100,000 people who um, were relocated to the US as part of um, Operation Allies Refuge, um, which was that sort of two week chaotic evacuation period in August of 2021, 3,000 of those people had a special immigrant visa in hand, only 3,000. Half of the remaining people were eligible, about half, or were family members of um, like of people who were eligible. Um, so they were sort of beneficiaries by default. Um, but only 3,000 of them had the SIVs. According to a report that was written in August of 2022 by uh, an organization called the Association of Wartime Allies, who surveyed a population um, of SIVs in Afghanistan, um, about 81,000 people had an SIV or were close to being finished with the process um, in August of 2021. And if only 3,000 of those people were brought to the United States as a part of Operation Allies Refuge, then 78,000 SIV holders are still in Afghanistan or potentially have at this point moved to a third country. Um, so it's a lot. Uh, we don't know now, as, as I mentioned, this was this report was written in August 20 of 2022. It's possible that in the past year there have been various pieces of movement that have happened. Um, but it's a huge number of allies who worked directly with the U.S. government who have been left behind. So moving on to the priority two population. Um, there is a particular program that was created by the State Department um, that enabled Afghans who did not work necessarily directly with the U.S. government, but worked as a, as a U.S. government contractor, worked as a journalist for a U.S.-based media company or a U.S.-based NGO, or acted as a women's rights advocate, a human rights advocate, um, so we're sort of like peripheral to the U.S. mission, but the U.S. wanted to recognize that they deserve a pathway to, to status in the U.S. somehow. Um, there is like a, uh, I'm not going to harp on this, but I think it's worth mentioning that there's a real gender component to the SIV versus the P2. The primary, the Primarily, the people who worked as SIVs directly with the U.S. military were men. They were translators. They were interpreters. Um, and the people who worked uh, sort of indirectly, um, humanitarian workers, advocates, et cetera, were primarily women. Um, and the P2 program has been a lot harder to access. And the amount of people who were part of the PT program that originally came to the US and the people who are left behind um, are primarily women. Um, so 
the majority of these people who were referred to the priority two category of the U.S. Refugee Admissions Program, um, which means that once they are referred, they start the process of of being vetted essentially as a refugee. That has to happen in a third country, so in a country that is not Afghanistan, um, and also one that is not the United States. Um, because Pakistan is the closest neighbor to Afghanistan, and it is the sort of easiest, albeit still dangerous, um, ground route, many Afghans have gone to Pakistan. Currently, there is an estimated 600,000 Afghans who have fled to Pakistan since August of 2021, and at least 20,000 of those have referrals to the U.S. Refugee Admissions Program. The situation in Pakistan right now is extremely bleak. Um, there is no P2 processing happening in Islamabad, the capital of Pakistan at all. Um, there is a historic uh, tension between Pakistan and Afghanistan, Pakistan has been um, has brought in almost two million Afghan refugees over the last fifty years, um, and is very disinterested in um, keeping them in the country, uh, and is very concerned about any creation of pull factors that might encourage more Afghans to come in. And as a result of that, the U.S. government has had a really hard time uh, negotiating with them about establishing a, a center for processing, um, which means that all of the people who went to Pakistan in hopes of being processed now don't have a mechanism by which that processing can happen. Um, people are having a hard time sustaining themselves, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so what's the relocation process look like for the people who are eligible? There are particular flights that are leaving Kabul that go to a third country. There are various processing centers in third countries um, in Qatar, in the United Arab Emirates, in Albania, in Kosovo. Um, the people who are on those flights are, are primarily SIV holders um, or family reunification cases, mostly of unaccompanied Afghan minors who were separated from their families at the airport um, during that two week period. There are also Afghans um, that are not part of the sanctioned US government relocations who are flying, who are desperate, who are flying to Brazil on a humanitarian visa and crossing the Darien Gap alongside Venezuelan, Colombian, Ecuadorian, Guatemalan um, asylum seekers. It's a, it's a horrific journey. Um, and then and trying to get to Mexico so that they can seek asylum at the US border. Um, and obviously that is uh, indicative of the desperate situation that many Afghans are facing uh, in Afghanistan and elsewhere. Um, and, you know, while the relocation effort of August of 2021 was Herculean in many respects, hundreds of thousands of Afghans remain in perilous and tenuous situations. Um, and many of those have theoretical legal pathways to come to the U.S. Um, and while it's not necessarily accurate to say that the U.S. government is doing nothing to help them, um, but they certainly could be doing more. And Giovanna is going to speak a little bit, I'm sure, about how the Afghan Adjustment Act might enable some of these people um, to have a better chance to be 
relocated and, and ultimately resettled in the US. Thank you so much, Campbell, for, for shining a light on a part of the Afghan refugee crisis that I don't think gets talked about enough. And uh, we need the political will and the resources behind this effort um, because um, that's what's going to be the long-term, the long-term battle um, behind it. So thank you for your work and, and thank you for, for, for all of that. I will pass it over to, to Giovanna now. We've heard, we've mentioned the Afghan Adjustment Act several times, um, and most people on the call, I am sure, are familiar with this bill. Um, but two years have passed, um, and it is still not an accident to law. Um, so I, I would love to hear a quick a quick summary of the bill. How does it address some of the things that we've talked about in today's webinar? Where does it stand? You know, and how how can we how can we get this passed? And um, lots of the questions in the chat, I think, are, are relevant to that as well. But First, would just love to hear you talk about the bill um, and all that it entails. So take it away. Yes, thank you so much, Lindsay, Campbell, Dario, and Lance. Um, this is a really important issue. Um, I'm really struck by how many people are on the call today. You know, two years out, there's there's not as much media attention. Um, there's not that spotlight that the the event, uh, the couple of fall, really grabbed the first year. Um, on the first year anniversary. And I hope that it means that, you know, we have the energy, we have the momentum to get something done this year. Um, that's, I think, what I continue to hear from folks um, that I connect with, our congregations that are involved in this hospitality, um, service providers, uh, humanitarian organizations, all agree that we really need to act sooner rather than later. And luckily, there are really great opportunities coming up um, this year that I hope all of you, if you take away anything, um, you, you have the power to help uh, pass this legislation and that you take up that opportunity this year. Um, I'll lay that out in just a minute. Um, so you've heard from, you know, colleagues on the call about, you know, people assisting families with furnishing apartments, you know, driving to appointments, helping people get licenses, navigating all of the uh, tribulations and trials of, of getting a legal status, whether you're SIV or non-SIV. Um, and, you know, right now our, our primary concern is a lot of those folks who arrive through humanitarian parole. Uh, so they are uh, not SIV in this situation because their uh, legal status is in limbo. Um, and we're not talking about, you know, a couple dozen people. We're talking about tens of thousands of people, many of whom are families. Uh, I want to punctuate uh, what Lance, Lance said earlier is that these are a lot of families, children who came alongside their parents or other family members um, who faced the gauntlet that is our very convoluted, complex, um, and unworkable sometimes immigration system. Um, so, uh, you know, we've done similar things like this in the past. Uh, when the Vietnam War was ending, Thousands of Southeast Asians uh, who were fleeing political persecution came to the United States. Um, and it was actually many of our congregations, Lutheran congregations alone, helped sponsor about 50,000 refugees from Southeast Asia. Um, it, was, it was all these congregations, Lutherans, Episcopalians, Catholic, who were foundational to building up the refugee system that we now have. Um, and I want to remember, um, you know, what brings us here is, is you know, um, denominations as people of faith, 
it, it is our faith. It's our it's our roots in um, the gospel. It's our roots in what we believe is is um, you know right. Um, for many Christians, the whole of our moral life is this is like memory, memory of how our own people have lived through past persecution and displacement and come here. Um, memory of grace, memory of God's grace, memory of the grace of strangers. Um, in some ways, spiritually and historically, we are just like a wandering people. Um, and we've depended often on the hospitality of others. So now, you know, we recognize that one of the greatest things we can do to help our uh, neighbors who we're provided hospitality for is acting, uh, using our voice, use, being participants in civic life um, to make a difference for uh, these folks in the long term. Um, it's a hope for ourselves. It's a hope for our society. And it's a hope for um, the larger picture um, that we can make change. So we've heard now that many Afghans who arrived by humanitarian parole um, face this temporary status. Um, and the fact is, you know, Congress could do something about it. Um, and that thing is uh, very simple. It's it's passing uh, the Afghan Adjustment Act. It's a bipartisan bill. It's already um, overcome even kind of like the polarized nature of our Congress. It has bipartisan support already. Um, in the House, uh, it is HR 4627. And in the Senate, it's 2327. It was reintroduced for the 118th session of Congress. It was in, first introduced in the last Congress. And basically advocates, um, including you know, the Episcopal Church, Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, we've been trying to move the needle, trying to get this bill passed at every opportunity. Um, we made a really big push last year, accompanied meetings, uh, met with lawmakers. It's actually the reason why uh, when this bill was reintroduced, you saw so much support for it right away. Um, and even in the last several months, um, these meetings have had an impact. So um, I, I like to illustrate the example of a group in uh, North Carolina that was consistently meeting with uh, Senator Tillis um, who was not yet a co-sponsor of the Afghan Adjustment Act in the Senate until he was. Um, and one of the first groups that were notified of his support for this bill was that, uh, that group that met with him um, consistently about the Afghan Adjustment Act. And I wanna shout out that group because I think some of them are on the call today. So your advocacy does make a difference and that's why we are now in uh, a really one of the best positions. Um, this bill uh, was offered as an amendment to the Senate version of what's called the National Defense Authorization Act. Um, it's a bill that Congress passes every year, um, authorizes uh, uh, spending in um, uh, defense programs. Um, the difficulty was uh, the amendment was not included in the House or the Senate versions of the NDAA, but that doesn't mean um, the whole you know, campaign is over. Actually, we still have an opportunity through the conference process. Um, so advocates have been shifting their strategy, pivoting their strategy to what can we do to get, make sure that the Afghan Adjustment Act is addressed through the conference process. What is the conference process you might be asking? So uh, when bills differ as the House and Senate versions of the National Defense Authorization Act do, 
uh, lawmakers must resolve those differences through a compromise agreement in the form of a conference report. Um, the groups that are involved in the conference report are folks, uh, are members of Congress in the House and Senate Armed Services Committee. Um, we're hoping at this time that lawmakers will push to address the Afghan Adjustment Act through this process. Um, it's not a far-fetched idea. Um, and I think it, we really um, push for it in the next couple of months, uh, we could really make something happen. Um, Congress does have other opportunities to act, of course, but this is the timeliest one because uh, lawmakers will return in September, um, so only a few weeks from now, to resume their work on the NDAA. So you can help to help in this process by continuing to build support for the NDAA across the aisle. Currently, um, I think there was a question about this. Um, the Senate, in the Senate, there are 11 co-sponsors, uh, Democrat and Republican. And in the House, there are 31 co-sponsors. Uh, you can look up the bill on congress.gov and find out if your member of Congress is already in support of the Afghan Adjustment Act. And if they're not, then Lindsay will tell you what to do. But uh, you asked me to cover a little bit about what the, um, the bill actually does. Uh, the bill allows Afghans who sought refuge in the US to apply for permanent legal residency after undergoing additional vetting, um, essentially the equivalent of what they would have had to do if they were processed as refugees through um, P1 status. Um, and currently, uh, you know, Afghans who were admitted on this humanitarian parole, their options are SIV, as we kind of covered, or asylum. And specifically, asylum is challenging because there's an immense uh, backlog in uh, affirmative asylum cases. I believe it's over 430,000. And overall, there's more than 1 million uh, cases in immigration court backed up. Um, Think about any kind of bureaucracy you've ever had to navigate, uh, double that, <laughs> um, and then also add um, the fact that looming overhead of many people is this uncertainty that you heard Dario and Lance, Lance talking about. So um, in addition to what, uh, you know, this pathway to lawful permanent residency is, um, this uh, bill would address gaps in the SIV program to ensure that all who assisted the, in the US, um, including the Afghan National Army, Special Operations Command, the Afghan Air Force, the female tactical teams of Afghanistan, and the Special Mission Wing of Afghanistan can access permanent residency through this program. Um, it would create this pathway, as I mentioned, to apply for permanent residency, and it creates a streamlined pathway for um, uh, SIV eligible and P1 uh, applicants. Um, it upholds our very robust uh, national security protections um, through the additional vetting requirements that I mentioned. Um, it also requires ongoing and renewed efforts to evacuate at-risk Afghans. Um, so we can continue to make sure that people who are, um, whether you know people protesting, um, humanitarians, others um, can continue to receive support abroad. Um, and it also, you know, follows up on our sort of moral uh, memory that we're building together. Uh, how can we build a strong moral foundation um, for what our history looks like, what we want our history to look like in the years ahead? 
Um, one thing that uh, Lindsay also asked me to speak about um, is an additional bill that addresses SIV applicants. Um, and you know, these individuals who have given so much to uh, support the US in uh, wartime efforts. Um, so there's a bill called the Afghan Allies Protection Act, which provides critical authorizations and reforms to the Afghan SIV program. Um, and luckily, uh, when the Senate passed their appropriate, the Senate Appropriations Committee passed the State and Foreign Operations Appropriations Bill back in July, it included 20,000 more SIV authorizations and it extended that program because it needs to be re-extended. Um, but we know that Congress needs to make this permanent by passing something like the Afghan Allies Protection Act as well. Um, with that, I'm going to uh, turn it back to Lindsay and perhaps we can answer any questions that are left. Absolutely. Thank you, Giovanna, for that for that thorough explanation and, and encouragement on, on why and how uh, we can advocate for the Afghan Adjustment Act. I'll post two links in the chat. We have one for the Lutherans and one for the Episcopalians. We both have action alerts that will automatically fill in. When you fill in your information, it'll automatically send it to your members of Congress. If they're on the bill, um, at least on the Episcopal side, if they're on the bill, um, it will automatically know that and you can send them a nice thank you message. Um, so that's the first and the easiest thing you can do. So I'll put those in the chat. We will send these in the email as well. So this one's for the for the um, for the Lutheran action alert, the ELCA action alert. This one's for the Episcopal action alert. So that's the first and easiest thing that you can do. If and I hope that if you're on this call today, um, you have even more energy and 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 drive. Um, you can also be writing your own personal letters. Include information. Attend town halls when your members are in your district place an op-ed or, or get your bishops involved as is appropriate. Um, partner with Episcopal or Lutheran or other faith groups to build your message. Um, Giovanna and Campbell and I are all in a coalition with veterans and business groups and human rights groups that are all working together. Um, and I'm sure Nor Norman and um, in Norman and in, in Houston, they're seeing a lot of folks get involved on this. So if you think that you've don't just send the action alert. You're welcome to. That'll be great. But if you can do more, please, please do more. Um, and don't be stopped just because your member is a Republican or just because your member is a Democrat. Um, I think a key part of this strategy is getting people to talk to each other. As Giovanna said, this is a strong bipartisan bill. Um, but part of the strategy on both the Senate and the House side is that they say it um, kind of laughingly, but I like it, and I think that this will be great for our group here. They say the Noah's Ark system. So with the, for every Democrat, there's a Republican. For every Republican, there's a Democrat to bring it along together. So if, you're, if you're Democrat, your Democratic representative is saying to you, well, we support the bill. They just won't let us get on. Tell them to find a Republican. Tell them to use their, their powers of, of discourse and, and um, partnership to get folks together. Um, we've seen... Uh, this bill and this issue really get support in, in ways that you would not expect. Um, so another, another note of encouragement. Something that I'll also share in the resource is the Episcopal Church has something called the Faith and Citizenship Guide. So that is kind of a, a advocacy tips and guide 101, uh, tells you how to, to build coalitions and build relationships to get member to meet with members of your con uh, members of Congress as well, um, and so we really need 
support. Constituents are driving the issue. We can meet with these folks and we do meet with these folks on a weekly basis, uh, but we need we need voices. And certainly if you have contacts in other in other spots, um, if you've used them up, um, we are we are churches that that cross that across the country. So don't don't be limited as well by by your by your your city or your or your region. Um, think think big because we we need all hands on deck for this as well. And for everyone who has been who has been sponsoring, gather those stories, put put them out there um, because we need them and we'll use them um, and we'll continue to to fight for this and, until it gets passed. The Office of Government Relations aims to represent the policy priorities of the Episcopal Church to the U.S. government in Washington, D.C., and to influence policy and legislation on critical issues, all while highlighting voices and experiences of Episcopalians and Anglicans globally. The Office facilitates the Episcopal Public Policy Network, a grassroots network of Episcopalians engaged in the Ministry of Public Policy Advocacy. Take action and learn more by following the links in the description. The Episcopals podcast is produced by the staff of the Office of Government Relations with the support from our podcast engineer, Ellie Singer, and project manager, Chris Sikama. Thanks for listening and join us next time on Episcopals. For 100 years, the generous donations of Episcopalians and supporters to the Good Friday offering have helped the Christian presence in the land of the Holy One to be a vital and effective force for peace and understanding among all of God's children. A lifeline of hope in times of genuine need in years past, the Good Friday offering continues to support churches, medical programs, and schools today. Now more than ever, we celebrate the centennial of this historic fund. Your support is needed. Give online at IAM dot ec slash good friday offering or text gfo to 91999 good friday offering celebrating a century of gifts and rejoicing in 2000 years of good news